You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Thank you, Jonathan. Church family, good to see you here this morning. Glad you're with us. If you have a Bible with you, I'd love for you to turn with me, if you would, to the the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2, there towards the end of your Bible. Hebrews 2, we are looking at and preparing our hearts for um, the implications of Christ's birth this Christmas. And uh what the uh, incarnate glory is that we behold in Jesus when he left the heavenly realm and stepped down into our world and took on human flesh. As veiled as that glory was, it was a glory to behold nonetheless. And as we've considered the idea of this incarnate glory, um, Matt uh, Younger even shared last week just what it was like on a human term when he beheld the glory of Troy Aikman when he walked into his second grade classroom. Uh, I was thinking even of one of those human level stories where I beheld a glory that was so incredibly veiled. And then once it was revealed, like I would never be the same on a human level again. And this happened in 2012, April 17th to be exact. Uh, I was working with the Village Church and uh, as campus pastor in Flower Mound and all the campus pastors of the Village Church, we had partnerships with other church, um, other churches and pastors up in the Northeast. And we decided to take a trip together uh, to head up there as myself, Bo Hughes, if you know him, Steve Harden, uh, how can you not know him, uh, as well as uh, uh, Josh Patterson. We all went up to the Northeast and we had a couple different cities we were hitting. And when we were in Boston, We had an empty night, a free night. We decided, you know what? Let's go check out a Red Sox game. We had never been to Fenway Park before. None of us had. Thought it'd be fun to go check out this prestigious, you know, uh, historical uh, ballpark. Even if you're not a sports fan, you don't have to be for this illustration because it gets crazy. We are uh, leaving our hotel. We're not far from Fenway. We decide to walk to Fenway. Now, we don't realize at this time Uh, that this is the 100th anniversary of this ballpark. And and we happen to know the pastor working there was the chaplain of the team who somehow scored us some tickets to get into this place. And so we are walking to the stadium, but there's a couple of different ways you can go. And uh, and on the way there, uh, we start thinking about who we could ask that's the shortcut. And we look over and we see this old lady. I've got a picture of here walking on the street. This is the moment I saw her. I thought, I, I need to not only ask her directions, I need to take her picture because this is just crazy. We see her walk in there and along with her husband. And we, uh, we ask her, we're like, hey, do you know, you look like you know what's going on here in Boston, which was a short way to the park. She's like, oh yeah, follow me. And uh, I'm invoking my Boston uh, here pretty soon. So we, uh, we start walking with her. She's got this, this route to the stadium. We're walking with her find out she has been coming to Boston to every game for almost 80 years. Um, and we're like, whoa, okay. So we, we follow her and we're, we're going, hey, we're from Texas. Um, we're out of town here, first time. What do we need to know? And, uh, and she, goes, she goes, well, I'll tell you what. Uh, third inning, I'm gonna come find you. And I'm gonna show you around a, a thing or two here. And we're like, okay, uh, do you know where we're sitting? She goes, tell me where your seats are. We're like, well, we're in this sea of people over here. I'll find you, third inning. We're like, okay, sure she is. Not only is she not gonna find us, but even if she does, what's she gonna show us? The restrooms? Are we gonna see the fan shop? 
Um, and so sure enough, third inning, boom, there she is, shows up. She's got the replica of the stadium on as a helmet on her head. Um, so I'm like, all right, you've got a map to this thing. Well, we decide to follow her and uh, she goes, follow me. And we just start walking and she takes us down this corridor that takes us up. If you've ever heard or been to Fenway, Fenway, the back of the, in the outfield is what's known as the green monster. And it's this giant green wall. And there's only about five rows on top of this thing. And there's not many at all. Well, she takes us up this thing and we hit this gate with the security guy. He didn't even say a word. He just opens it up. And she just walks on in. At this point, all of us are going, who are you? Who, who are you? Nobody just gets to walk through security like that, unquestioned. We go up. She has, she has five seats for us sitting on the front row of the green monster. So we got us hanging out here, right there on the edge of the monster. And, uh, and at this point, we're losing our minds. We get to sit up there. By the way, they're playing as God's Providence would have it. They are playing the Texas Rangers this day. And the Rangers win 18 to three. We smoked them. It was a fantastic day. Many home runs were hit to us uh, on this section of the Green Monster while we're up there. It's just fantastic experience. Couldn't imagine on this anniversary. And then after about an inning, she's like, all right, we're done with this. She's like, have you ever seen a press box? And I'm like, well, again, this is our first time at Fenway, so not here, have we? Follow me. And we just walk and she takes us down. We go through this back corridor and then she takes us into this press box and we just, we walk in. I don't know who these people are. And they just look at her like, hey, come on in, yay. And we just go in and we're like, who are you? And we sit in these people, I don't know who they are, we sit in their box for an entire inning watching this game. And we're just, we're going nuts because she will not tell us who she is. And then after an inning, she goes, all right, you ever seen a president's box? Again, no, we've never been to Fenway, so, uh, but certainly not this. So we go down this other corridor that has even more security, a private hallway, nobody's in there. It's not just replicas of jerseys. There are authentic jerseys from the 1800s, early 1900s on this wall. She takes us for a moment into the president's box of the Boston Red Sox. At this point, we're losing our minds. So she goes, all right, I'm gonna take you somewhere else. Follow me. And we go, no. And you imagine if you know Steve Harden, he put no, the Holy Spirit has told me right now we're not going any further. We sit right down with her. We're like, you have got to tell us who you are. How do you have access to all this place? She just looks like any other glorified fan out there. And in that moment, she sits down and look at this picture. She, we're sitting out in the middle of the deal there in this hallway and she pulls out all this literature. One of them was a Sports Illustrated with her on it. She is Boston's number one fan. Number one fan. She has been attending every home game for the last 80 years when her dad took her as a baby. And so she has become Boston's number one fan. I don't even know her name, but when you ask a local out there, hey, who's Boston's number one fan? They talk about this lady. And here's the deal. On that particular day, as we're walking to the stadium, of all the people we could have asked to get directions, 
Everybody's dressed up weird that day. And she is the one we ask. And in this moment of all this uniqueness, she then reveals her glory to us. And we felt like John 1, we beheld her glory. And we walked among her. We were with her. Um, it was this moment where you go from somebody that you would have never suspected, an ordinary or maybe extraordinary, eccentric Boston fan who reveals that she is actually Boston's number one fan. It gave us a tour of a lifetime to the point that the next time I went to Boston and was asked if I wanted to go to a game, I said, no, I will never step foot in Fenway again because anything will be lesser than that. I have beheld the glory and I am not the same because of it. I have retired from watching baseball games after this. I say all of that because in many ways, you know what's crazy about all this? That's just a Boston fan. And in some ways it's kind of sad actually. I'm going 80 years, this is what you've done with your life? Okay, cool. But I think about the fact that as John wrote in John 1.1, when Jesus came to earth, God in the flesh, God incarnate, he came and made his dwelling among us. Like think about how crazy that is. God among us. And, and we beheld his glory. Glory is the only begotten son. We, we beheld that, John said. And in many ways, that's what we've been doing in this series. We're trying to get our heads around somebody that none of us would have ever recognized. Isaiah 53 says, when you looked upon Jesus, in fact, he, he didn't look like God at all. He looked like a man of sorrows. Like there's nothing about him that would have tipped you off. This is God. His glory was veiled in human flesh. And yet he came and made his dwelling among us. We've been looking at that from different angles in this series, but the point of today's message is we don't wanna just behold the glory, just the fact that God came and became man. You wanna ask the question that we all need to ask, and that is why? Why would God come to earth and take on human flesh? Why this way? And that's exactly what we're gonna see here in Hebrews chapter two. It's what the author of Hebrews wants us to see as we behold the incarnate glory of Jesus Christ. If you are unfamiliar with the letter of Hebrews, uh, much like the letter of Colossians that we began this series in, there was a church um, that was a series of churches, the Christians who were encountering a lot of false teaching in their day. And in this particular letter, the author of Hebrews writes to the church to Jewish Christians in particular who are facing a false teaching that was saying that there's no way God could have dwelt in human flesh. Because uh, as a Jew, that's the, last, that's the last person on earth who would believe that God would come and dwell in human flesh. Um, Jews would not hold to that. Jews saw God high and lifted up and, and we are much, much lower than that. And to say that God would come. And so the false teachers jumped onto that fear and that idea and simply said that Jesus, and they took some of the Greek mythology or Greek understanding of Platonic thought that matter is evil and spirit is good. And so therefore spirit can never indwell in, in human flesh. And so there's this dichotomy, there is this division between spirit and flesh. And so at best, this was God, but he was more like a hologram. It was an emanation of God in the form of a human being, but it really wasn't real flesh and blood. We have a whole camp today that believes that called the Jesus Seminar. It believes Jesus was never in human flesh, that he was just an emanation of God. Uh, it was an angelic spirit that came and, and, and inhabited the form or at least the presentation of a man, but it wasn't truly human. Or there are others who feel that 
now this was, Jesus was inferior. He, he couldn't have been God at all. It was real human flesh. It was just a form of God that was inferior to God. It was less than even angels. And so the, the author of Hebrews is gonna write this entire letter trying to show why Jesus is superior, why Jesus is better than any other figure you've read about in your Old Testament. He's, he's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. He's better than David. And yes, he's even better than the angelic realm, even though for a little while, he was presented as lower than them in form. But there's a reason why he came in this form. And that's what the author of Hebrews is gonna show. In verse nine of chapter two, he's gonna give us here what will be the thesis statement of all the verses that will follow uh, as to why when you look at Jesus in that manger, why that shouldn't be God, why that doesn't look like God in this particular form, why is it we see Jesus in this form in such a lowly manner And he's gonna argue it's because the ultimate reason of why he came, he had to come this way. And so here's the thesis statement, verse nine. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. I don't want you to miss that, for everyone. In other words, for us. Don't miss that. That, This is the thesis statement. Jesus was brought low in the likeness of human flesh, would die a criminal's death on the cross so that he could serve as God's agent of grace to us and do something for us that we could not do for ourselves. And in verses 10 through 18, what the author is gonna do now is he's gonna explain by showing us three primary reasons why Jesus came in the manner that he did, of why he came in the way he did for us that proves that God is not against us. God is for us. God is not against you. God is for you. And that is evidenced and these three primary reasons why Jesus came in the way that he did. And I pray that these three reasons we'll meditate on just briefly here today will bring you much comfort and cheer this Christmas as we hail the incarnate deity. The first reason the the author of Hebrews is gonna make here in verses 10 through 13 is that Jesus came as our brother in order to save us from eternal suffering and bring us into the family of God. Jesus came as our brother in order to save us from eternal suffering and bring us into the family of God. Look at this in verse 10. The author says, for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, we're talking about God the Father right now. It is fitting that God the Father in bringing many sons to glory, meaning there's a purpose that God the Father had in mind. And and as God looked upon a broken world that was marred by sin, that was under the, the due judgment and penalty of sin, which was death, as God looked upon the brokenness of humanity of which you and I are included on, 
included in, he had a purpose to bring many of us into the family of God, to bring many sons to his glory. Meaning that God viewed us as orphaned children, sons and daughters who were in need of redemption, who were in need of salvific rescue. God had a plan and it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in order to bring many sons to glory, here's what was fitting, that he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. In other words, in order for God to bring about this rescue plan to take orphans like you and I who had been alienated from God because of our sin and rebellion, who were in, in under, under eternal condemnation, in order for him to rescue us, it was fitting that he was gonna take the founder of our salvation, the savior of our salvation, and make him perfect through suffering. There's a reason why Jesus had to come the way that he did, because it was fitting, according to the nature of God, to bring about this kind of rescue. And, and so here's what we mean by that. The savior's to come. Notice he calls him the founder of our salvation. That word in Greek, archagos, means it means pioneer. Jesus was gonna be the trailblazer for our salvation. He's gonna be the one who was gonna pioneer something that nobody else had the power to do, which is to bring about our salvation. And the way that he was gonna do it, it was fitting in being able to save us that he would come like us, that he would taste the suffering that we have tasted in the flesh. The idea of Jesus being made perfect through suffering, and you understand that phrasing reads weird in English. It's not that Jesus was morally or ethically challenged. And so he had to kind of go through some suffering in order to be perfected. That's not what we're talking about there. What it literally means is it's the idea that Jesus had a mission to fulfill. And this is the only way it could be done. Jesus had a mission to fulfill that can only happen if he were to be identified with us. He had to be identified with us. And in identifying with us, suffering is a required course if you're going to be identified with humanity. This is essentially what the last two weeks of Advent messages have been about, the idea of identification. Jesus became like us. Jesus walked among us, which is the idea of verse 11 when he says, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. And that is why he is not ashamed to call them or us brothers. Now, the idea that as our savior, Jesus became one in identity with the very ones that he was saving is amazing. Jesus identifies with us and he not only identifies us in our sufferings, he identifies us to such a degree that as God's son bringing us into God's family, he is unashamed to call us his brother. More on that in a second, but in verses 12 through 13, he elaborates on this. The author of Hebrews cites um, two Old Testament passages that are conveying the idea that, are, that it's proof that Jesus is not ashamed in his redemption of us to, call, to bring us into his family and call us proudly his brother. 
First is Psalm 22, which is quoted first there. Psalm 22, by the way, that's the Psalm that Jesus quotes part of when he's on the cross, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a Psalm that begins with a cry for vindication, but the Psalm ends with this quote here as a declaration. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. It's a declaration of family, unashamedness. Isaiah 8 is the other passage that's quoted in the next two stanzas here in verse 13. Isaiah 8 uh, is a portion of Isaiah's letter where Isaiah is confessing how dark the situation is for Israel in their rebellion and the due judgment that they are deserving for walking away from God in their idolatry and how dark this is. It's the idea that no one wants to follow God. Nobody's believing my message, Isaiah says, about about the good news of a savior who will come. Everybody's rejecting that, but he makes a declaration as well in Isaiah 8 when he says, I will put my trust in him. Everybody else may be rejecting right now. I'm not, I'm putting my trust in you. And then secondly, he says, behold, I and all the children who are truly yours, whom God has chosen to bring in this family, they're not gonna be ashamed either. Even though it seems like everybody's walking away right now, I'm not, and there are others who won't as well. I'm not ashamed of my God and he is not ashamed of me. And so I will stand in a day when everybody else is. And so he quotes those here. And these passages, they are written of both David and Isaiah. And yet the author of Hebrews rightly interprets that this is all prophetic of Jesus. That the Messiah who will come to save us will be unashamed of his father and unashamed of those whom he'll bring into the father's family. Do do y'all understand how amazing this is? How many of y'all or older siblings in here? Anybody? Okay. How many of y'all had an experience where you were somewhat embarrassed to have your younger sibling around you in public? Anybody ever had that? Oh yeah, look at the hands going up, shame. Uh, that goes on, we all have it. If you're an older sibling, probably there is some of that. If you're the younger sibling, did you taste that experience? When you so wanted to be it, my daughters are nodding right now because I've got five daughters with a big arc and my youngest right now is going, this is my life every day. <laughs> they are, they don't, they're embarrassed of me. They don't wanna be with me, right? We all have these seasons where we're potentially embarrassed of our siblings. Conversely though, do you have a story where the one whom you esteemed so much actually affirmed you in the presence of peers? where you got invited into their glory and they were unashamed to call you sibling. If you tasted that, you know what that feels like. This is what Jesus is talking about. Jesus who came for you. That's what Christmas is all about. God coming to rescue you, sending his one and only son to rescue you. And when his son showed up on this planet and his son enacted his plan to bring you and I into the family of God, he's not ashamed of us. He's not looking at you and holding your sins against you and going, yeah, you're gonna come in here, but we're gonna troll you on your sins the rest of eternity. No, Jesus is standing in this moment when everybody else is rejecting him and everybody else is rejecting you. He says, you're mine. 
And I am unashamed to be your brother, to be a co-heir of the glory of God with you in this salvation. That's why Jesus came in the flesh. Oh, sinner, let that sink in. Your God loves you. He's not ashamed of you. Christmas is the answer for the shame that we feel due to our own sin or the sins of others that have harmed us. And our Savior, who took on human flesh, who walked through our sufferings, who tasted rejection, tasted exploitation, who knows what it's like to suffer and yet not sin, who gave his very life for you and I to forgive us of our sins and bring us into the family of God, he is not ashamed of you. The author has made that clear. Reason number one, that Jesus came to be your unashamed brother who saves you from eternal suffering and brings you in to the family of God. Reason number two, verses 14 and 15. Jesus comes as our deliverer who rescues us from the power of death and the works of the devil. You see this starting in verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing. Now, why is that important to make that statement in the context of the book of Hebrews? Because everybody, all the false teachers around them were saying Jesus couldn't have taken on human flesh. He couldn't be like you. That wouldn't be fitting for God. No, no, quite the contrary. It was fitting for God if he's gonna save you this way. And so no, Jesus did take on human flesh. And it's important because as Jesus takes on human flesh, the whole purpose of him doing so is ultimately so that he can go to the cross and die for us. And you can't just have anybody die. An angel can't go die for us. Remember from Genesis chapter three, when sin first entered the world, the penalty for sin was death. I promise you that in the day you eat of this tree, you shall surely die. Paul will say it again in Romans 3, the wages of sin, or Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. That is the penalty for having sinned, of which every one of us have done, is death. But you can't, if you're going to have a substitute, it can't just be any substitute. It can't be another human being because they're broken and flawed just like you and I are. That's not satisfactory. It needs to be an unblemished human being. It can't just be an angel because that's not full flesh and blood. That's why the reason I've said this many times, when Jesus goes to the cross, he can't just cut off his ear and give us his ear and we just take his hearing. He can't just cut out an eye and give us his eye and just by giving us his sight. He has to give us his blood because in your blood is your life. And the penalty for sin was death, a life for a life. It had to be a human just like us, yet without sin. And there is only one person who is qualified for that ever. It is Jesus Christ. And so the author is emphatically saying he had to take on flesh just like us for these next two purposes that you see in verse 14 and 15. One is so that he could defeat death. You see this in 14, that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. In other words, the first thing that Jesus' death accomplished was defeating death, and particularly the one who reigned over death, which was Satan himself. Jesus, in coming to die for us in our place, has paid the penalty that we deserved. 
It has now been paid. We are forgiven. But his rising from the grave conquered it. It conquered sin, it conquered death, and it conquered Satan himself. They were all destroyed in Jesus's resurrection. His power has conquered those things for us. And the result of that is the second thing here in verse 15 uh, is of what his death did for us is that he is able now to deliver all of those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now don't miss this. Christmas is a reminder here, according to this verse, that no matter how bad things get in this world, no matter how bad things get in your life or your family, no matter how tragic the circumstances, no matter what, you don't have to be afraid of death anymore. Cancer is still gonna come. Car accidents can still come. Miscarriages can still come. Stillborn deaths can still come. Old age is still gonna come. COVID and all its Greek variants, they're still going to come, probably for a long time. But the point is, you don't have to be a slave to fear concerning what's on the other side of those things. You you don't have to because Jesus pioneered this for us. He trailblazed this for us by dying and resurrecting in our place. And all those who put their trust in Jesus and not their own self-righteousness or their own works have been set free to the newness of life. Literally, you have been emancipated from the slavery that death had mastery over you. Now, just to be clear, when the author uses the fear of death here, he's not talking about the fear of dying. That's normal. All of us may fear the process of dying. We may feel the, fear the way that we're gonna die. And that's scary to think about because death was never part of the original equation. So it's unnatural. It should be a little scary to some degree. When he's talking here about you don't have to fear death anymore, he's talking about the punishment that comes on the other side. Hebrews goes on to tell us that it is appointed that every one of us will die once. And after that comes judgment. But here what we see is Jesus has already met that judgment for us. And if your trust is in him, you don't have to fear that day that you die, that you're gonna stand before God and be judged in eternity of hell before him because Jesus has already paid that price for us. And so God wants us here to rejoice in our great redeemer who who has taken beloved sons and daughters that he has purchased and how has set them free so you don't have to fear the wrath of God that is still to come on the rest of the earth. 1 John 3.8 actually speaks to this very thing. 1 John 3.8 says this, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the very beginning. If you're sinning, and that's the regular mode of your life, and you have no savior to stand in your place, there's something to fear there. But however, notice what the author says here, what John says, the reason the son of God appeared, the reason why Christmas mattered in the first place is so that son could destroy the works of the devil. So you don't have to fear anymore. So do you see reason number two here? Jesus came for us as our deliverer who rescues us from the power of death and the works of the devil. And then thirdly, 
you'll see in verses 16 through 18, one other reason that Jesus has come, one other reason why Christmas matters is because now Jesus as our high priest is the one who helps us presently in our sins, sufferings, and temptations. Verse 16, for surely it is not angels that he gives this help to, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. We move from future tense to present tense right now. We know the day's coming when Jesus is gonna return. He's gonna eradicate all sin once and for all. The very presence of Satan and all his minions and all the forces of evil will be destroyed once and for all. The presence of sin will be removed. We'll know nothing, no sorrow, no pain, no taste of death ever again. Just glory in the presence of God for all eternity. We know that day's coming. We wait for it. But what about right now? when we're walking through pain and suffering and hopelessness and despair and persecution, physical illness, all the pains that we'll experience in this flesh. What the author's telling us here is we don't just have a savior who's rescuing us from eternal sufferings on the other side of death. We actually have, because of the way that Jesus came, a merciful high priest who is able to help us in the midst of our sufferings right now. And the picture that he gives here in that passage that I just read is a picture of the day of atonement. It's the holiest day in all of the Hebrew calendar known as Yom Kippur. The day of atonement was the one day, the one day that the high priest of Israel and only he alone was permitted to enter into the holiest place in the entire temple, the Holy of Holies. And it's in this room where the Ark of the Covenant sat and the glory of God dwelt over the Ark. And the priest would enter in that room and what he would do is he would take the blood of a sacrificed animal and he would sprinkle that blood seven times on top of the Ark. The top of the Ark is called the mercy seat because underneath that mercy seat within the ark is the 10 commandments that reflect the sinfulness of man, our our inability to actually obey God perfectly. And above it is the holiness, the Shekinah, the glory of God looking down upon the broken law. And the go-between, the mediator is the blood. This priest gets to sprinkle that blood seven times on the mercy seat. And that blood atones, literally the word covers the sins of man. And the judgment of the righteousness of God is appeased. A big word that's used there called propitiated. It's appeased. So God's justice is satisfied and our need for love and forgiveness is met perfectly. And he uses this picture intentionally because that act, that Yom Kippur, that uh, Day of Atonement happened every year. It wasn't good for forgiving sins for all time. It was temporary because it was symbolic. It was foreshadowing the day when a once and for all sacrifice will be provided by God himself to lay down for us that will permanently forgive us all of our sins. 
And that's what we were waiting on. That was just merely a shadow of that, of what would come. And the author is letting us know that day has arrived. His name is Jesus. Jesus, what makes Jesus so amazing is that when he came and took on flesh in that, in that manger there, laid in that manger, that cave there in, in Bethlehem, he went on in his work on this earth, culminating in his death on the cross and his resurrection and then ascension where he is right now at the right hand of the Father. What it's showing us is that Jesus serves as both priest and sacrifice. Jesus is both the mediator, the one who goes between us and God, as well as the substitute, the one who stands in our place. He is both the priest that sprinkles and he is the lamb that gave his blood, all in one for us, in order to cleanse us, forgive us, and bring us into the family of God. And now that he has completed his earthly mission by freeing us from the power of sin and death through his death and resurrection. He's brought us into the family of God, adopted sons and daughters, co-heirs with Jesus. Jesus now gets to spend his time until he returns, interceding for us, providing help for us in our weakness. Incidentally, that phrase in verse 18 that says he is able to help those who are tempted, do you know how it reads in the Greek? It literally will translate, he's the one who comes to the shouts of those who need help. That's how, that's how Jesus stands in for us. He is able to hear your shouts. Think about those moments of your deepest despairs, your hardest moments in life. Maybe you're walking through one of those right now and you, you're just like Peter on the sea. All you can say is just help. All you can do is just cry out. Your God has big enough ears that are not only filled with compassion because he's walked where you've walked. He understands the physical limitations of the flesh and the hardships and the sufferings. But because he's gone into the grave and come out, he is actually has the ability to do something about it. And by putting our faith in him, he sent the third member of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit who comes and makes his dwelling in us, who's our comforter, our counselor, our healer. Jesus himself interceding for us, constantly defending the accusations of the devil who would come after you to want to bring shame upon your life to which Jesus can simply hold up his pierced wrists and pierced legs and go, that, that's already been paid. They're mine. This help the author says, this ain't for angels. You know why? Because Jesus didn't take on the form of an angel. He took on the form of human flesh. That's who this help is for. He has the power to help you. This salvation, it is for us. It is for you. So why did Jesus come? Three things. To be our unashamed brother who saves us from eternal suffering and brings us into the family of God to be our deliverer who rescues us from the power of death and the works of the devil and to be our high priest who helps us in our sin, sufferings, and temptations. Christmas, y'all, reminds us of that anthem the apostle Paul gave us in Romans 8, 31, when he said, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, 
who can be against us? He has moved heaven and earth for you, for me. Then what is it we have to fear? Let us behold his glory. And maybe as a result, we can join with Charles Wesley, who penned the famous words that we sing every Christmas and was actually plussed a little bit by George Whitfield later on. But these words that say this, Oh, hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth, mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise. Join the, join the triumph of the skies with the angelic hosts who proclaim Christ is born in Bethlehem. Then we zoom in to Bethlehem. Mild he lays, yes, his glory by. But he was born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. We're not talking about Boston's greatest fan, y'all. As cool as that unveiled glory was in that moment, we are talking about the Son of God who came and took on flesh, died the death that we deserve, raised to give us the newness of life because God is that much for us. Let's pray to that end. Oh God, Thank you. Thank you for the rich promises that we get to reflect on and meditate on. The fact that you didn't have to do anything. You, if you just let us perish in our sins, you would have been fully justified. But the fact that you so love the world that you gave us your one and only son, that whoever would believe in him shall not perish, but receive eternal life. Oh God, what kind of love is this that we should be called your children? Help us to relish in that this Christmas and always to see that you are for us. And God, in all things, may your son be glorified. May your church be strengthened and edified. Until you return, keep us focused on mission and let us go as the angels of old and herald the news of this Savior's birth so that others can experience this salvation as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus Christ. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15 a.m., and 4 p.m. and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.